Hi, everybody. This is Peter Diamandis. We're here for our next episode of Exponential Wisdom. And I'm here with my dear friend, partner, coach, Dan Sullivan. Dan, a pleasure as always to spend time with you, my friend. And today I'm interested in covering a topic that is near and dear to my heart, and it is helping people find their passion and their purpose. And I know it's near and dear to your heart as well. So I have a bunch of questions to ask you mm-hmm. about this, if you don't mind. I'd be pleased. Thank you. And I remember in my earliest days of Singularity University, I found that a lot of the most incredible graduate students there actually didn't have a clear vision of their purpose in life. One of my favorite quotes in the world is from Mark Twain, who said, you know, two important days in your life, the day that you were born and the day that you find out why. And so I'm on a mission to help people find their passion and purpose. And then once they've got their purpose, have the mindsets that enable them to fulfill their purpose. So if you don't mind, I'd love to journey into your passion and purpose. Mm -hmm. And you probably have had many, but if you don't mind, how would you describe your purpose today? Well, I'll tell you where it started. So I coach entrepreneurs and I have been doing this since August of 1974. So it's it'll be 48 years this year. I had a discussion one day with my team and they said, well, where'd you get the idea in the first place for strategic coach? And it actually goes back to journals I kept when I was around 20 years old. I felt that the educational system didn't actually deal with the actual reality of people's lives. It sort of imposed a form. I mean, it might be a form that's been well tested out, but it's not part of the experiences. So like subjects like history, well, it's not your history and Mm. geography. And I find these very useful and I like those subjects. But the most important thing was really getting a handle on your own experience and what your own experience mean for you. So in my journal, when I was 20 years old, I said, I'm going to create a new system of education that actually allows people to use the actual reality of their daily lives to create structures and processes and their own tools, their own ideas. So the very the material of their actual experience as a person, they make sense of it, and then they can see a real direction in their life. And it took me from, that would have been 1964 till 10 years later to actually launch that. I didn't have the name coaching for another 10 years. So, you know, I was out there and I had this way of getting people to think about themselves. And so that was the basic idea. That's not what made me successful, but that was the center of it. And I've been really with this. I'm 78 now. So I've been with this for 58 years. That's incredible. And would you describe that as a passion or purpose for yourself? Yes. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, both. And I think it's good that you mentioned both words because I think that you can be passionate about something but you don't know what to do with the energy and the purpose is that you're giving it a direction, you're giving it a destination. I think both of those words are equally important. 
And the one feeds the other. The more purpose you have, the more passion you have, the more passion you have, the more purpose you have. So you describe the difference as purpose being passion applied towards a specific objective. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've gone through a lot of evolutions for myself. How I think about it at 78 is quite a ways down the road from where I started. The central idea that has really made the coaching, I think, really powerful as we've gotten to it now is that you really have to look at what you're good at. And our concept for that is called unique ability. I think every person is born with a unique ability. And it's not just one activity, but it's a set of activities that when you put them together, things come very easy to you. It's very, very easy. And the other thing is it's energyless. It's almost like it gives you energy such that if you did your unique ability from morning till night, you'd have more energy at the end of the day than you had at the beginning of the day. And my experience is that it's easier for creative people to identify what this is than people who aren't creative. And I'm using that distinction because I only deal with entrepreneurs, but I have a feeling that people who are creative in other areas have a similar ease about it. It's an activity that they just can't stop doing. Would you describe unique ability as applying to both passion and purpose or more to purpose? Yeah, well, it's specific activities. For example, in my case, I am very good at listening to other people's experience and then drawing a diagram of what I just heard. And that diagram is very meaningful to them. I've done this thousands of times with people. And then I began to see that there were some common diagrams. In other words, that entrepreneurs pretty well all go about things. And then we've been able to translate these into, at this stage, we've got about 400 thinking tools in Strategic Coach, which started off as me just diagramming somebody's thinking. So I think graphically, I think graphically, and I have fairly good artistic skills. I mean, once you've mastered arrow stars, circles, and boxes, (laughs) boxes, you pretty well got all the artistic skills that you have. And what I find is that entrepreneurs are 80-20 creatures. They have a 20% that's just unique to them. You can't tell them anything about where they're unique, but there's an 80% that just makes common sense for all entrepreneurs if you're an entrepreneur. You know, if you're an entrepreneur and you have this 20%, this is how you go about taking the 20% and really making it powerful in the world. There is a process for finding your unique ability. And I, I do think when someone is in their unique ability, they're having fun, they're being productive, they feel purposeful, and it's the zone you want to be in. If you were going to create sort of a thumbnail sketch of finding your unique ability, how would you describe it? How does someone go about finding their unique ability? Yeah, we have a great expert at this in strategic coach named Julia Waller, who was a second and third grade teacher in the school system. And she joined us. And I said, would you like to now start educating people who actually make money? (laughs) (laughs) I said, you know, two and three-year-olds, you don't really know a lot whether they're going to turn out. I'm going to give you 30, 40, and 50-year-olds, and you can can work with them. 
So what we do is first step, we have them write a letter to people that they know. This would be people they work with, people who are clients, family members, friends. They just write a simple letter. It says, I'm going through a process in a program called Strategic Coach where we identify our unique abilities. You've known me for a long time. I trust your judgment. Could you just say when you think I'm in my unique ability, in other words, the thing that I'm best at and the thing that I should really spend most of my time doing, could you describe that for me? So they get these letters back. And just doing that is very transformative exercise. Usually this is the sort of stuff that shows up at people's funeral. You know, this is what people say. <laughs> <laughs> Would you like the eulogies before you die? <laughs> and what you find, it's like a Venn diagram, Peter, Mm. that people say different things, but with the 10 letters you get back, there's an enormous overlap. And it's the overlap of the 10 letters that really tells Julia Waller where to start in the process of saying, this is what they say about you. Can we give names to, if we took 10 different reports, but we actually gave a name to it. And then the person is very, very excited because they've gotten confirmation of what they're really great at from outside of themselves, and that's scientific. You can imagine anything you want, but if you get proof of it from outside, it actually helps enormously. And knowing that what you feel might be possible is actually real. It's already evident to other people. So you give it names, you've gotten an overlap on this Venn diagram. What is next? Is it self-confirmation or do you, how do you explore it next? Well, there's some outside programs. There's outside profiles by other companies that we use. I just had a lunch in Phoenix, Scottsdale, last Saturday with Kathy Colby, who I think has one of the best tests, if you want to call it a test, but it's a, you answer questions. And once you answer the question, left to your own devices and you're faced with this situation, how do you go about getting a result? And it's remarkably accurate. We've been using it for 28 years. We're responsible for half a million of their tests. If you include the entrepreneurs, their teams, their family, their clients, it's been a half a million of these tests that we've done profile. They're called profiles. Sure. For example, you and I have a lot of overlap, you know, in how we approach things. We're very, very similar. The only difference is you actually research and get the correct facts, and I just make the facts up. <laughs> well, you know that 37.2% of all facts are made up on the spot. Yes. <laughs> I find the facts that I make up really support my ventures just the way that I want them to go. <laughs> so, you know, your passion and purpose has pretty much held constant over the course of the last 40 plus years. You know, one of the things I'm excited about is how someone takes their passion and purpose and turns it into a career. Yeah. So can you talk about what you did there? Well, the unique ability concept, that's a story about you. But then one of the truths that you have to come clear about, that what's true about you it can be true of anybody else, okay? And that your unique ability only covers a certain number of activities and results that are going to be necessary for you to be successful. 
and immediately it introduces the concept of what we call unique ability teamwork. You can't do it alone. I mean, you may have a great capability, but the world requires a lot of teamwork to get a new venture started, a new project completed, a, a new goal achieved. It really requires a lot. Otherwise, you're going to be pulled out of your unique ability and you're going to be asked to do a lot of activities that wear you out that you're not really that good at. And I think this is what happens to most individuals so that they never find their purpose and they never find their passion is because they're asked by the school system or by their parents, I would say up until about age 25, they're asked to be good at everything when in fact they're only great at one thing. Interesting. I think that's a really critically valid point, which is the idea that if there are 10 disciplines required in a business, as an entrepreneur, your job isn't to become equally good at all 10. It's to become exceptionally good in one. Yeah. Right? Would you agree with that? Yeah, I would say if I pictured this as a diagram that 48 years ago, my circle of activities was about this big. And today my circle of activity is about this big. Okay. Yeah. But out from my little circle are many, many other circles. You're one of my circles. You know, mm -hmm. I had a real passion that the entrepreneurs in strategic coach who wanted to be more knowledgeable about exponential technologies, breakthrough technologies, that we needed to have a capability like that in strategic coach, but it's not something that I could provide. I didn't have any background. It's not even someone you could hire. You couldn't hire someone to do this. It had to be somebody who had this capability. And the first time I read the review of abundance in the Wall Street Journal, and then you had the misfortune of coming into contact with Joe Polish. And, <laughs> and all things lead from Joe if Polish. If Joe Polish knows about you, then everybody in the world that Joe knows is going to know about you. <laughs> He's a great friend to both of us, so I was being a bit facetious, uh, love it, bit love facetious there. But if you want to be known to the world, Joe will be the person who will connect you. And that's his unique ability. He's one of the greatest connectors I've ever met in my life. Dan, I want to take you back to the early days of your passion and purpose. Was it a straight line? Was there moments of difficulty and challenge. How did you go from, ah, I want to do this, I, like this is a vision, a purpose of my life, and turning into a business? What were those early days like? What did you have to do first? And what were the challenges you had? Well, I think the first stage, if we're talking in entrepreneurial terms, is the day I quit my job as a copywriter with a big ad agency and said, I think I can do this out in the marketplace. So let's dive in there one second. So you were operating... It was 74, 1974, yeah. And talk about what you were doing and the aha moment, and then what gave you the courage to make that transition? Yeah, well, it was a job that I got here in Toronto. This is 1971. I got a job, and it was through a series of connections. I won't go into that. But it was with BBDO. It was the Canadian branch one of the largest ad agencies yeah in the world certainly a yeah. top five then but still top 10 yeah. today it was a personal connection with the creative director who was also half owner of the company in canada 
you know, and I have good writing skills. I found advertising an interesting activity. I enjoyed it. I liked it. But because I was the new guy in the agency in 71 and they weren't paying me anything, they put together all the clients. So clients make their money on the media placement. It's 17%. I think it's still 17%. So if a million dollars is spent on a campaign, the ad agency gets 170000 That's how the industry works. But then over time and advertising agencies, if they're 40 years old, it's been a merger of probably 10 to 15 little agencies over the 40 years. So it was the second largest in Canada. So they collect a lot of fee-for-service clients as a favor to someone who was running. And so they had about 10 fee-for-service, and most of them were family-owned businesses. So they assigned me as the writer, almost the account exec on these, because they didn't want to spend any money on these clients. And what I noticed right off the bat, Peter, is that their biggest problems were not going to be solved by advertising. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the problems were they just didn't have a future. They had a past and they were simply operating on inertia. And mm -hmm. so I started asking them future-based questions, like if it's three years from now, and this was the question that has become really standard. If we were having a discussion that was three years from now, and you're looking back over the three years to today, what has to happen for you to feel happy with your progress? And they say, what? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I says, we're three years in the future and we're looking backwards. So what do you want to say about the three years that got us to three years in the future that would make you happy? Right. And they talk and talk and talk and talk. <laughs> and it was like I had discovered water. And they said, this is the greatest discussion we've ever had. We've never had a discussion like this. Then they started asking, look, we're having a family meeting on Saturday. I know it's a weekend, but can you come out? And I said, well, the agency has declared. it. So I went back and talked to my creative director and he said, if you want to do it, he says, you're not going to get paid extra for it, but if you want to do it, go ahead and do it. So I did it and I got a really, really clear picture from about a year and a half of work that this was my future. Advertising wasn't my future. So there was a incredible sense a of- moment. <laughs> yes, yeah, and this like market product fit. Yeah. It felt right for you. It, it was hitting on your unique ability. So how long from that moment to the time that you resigned? Year and a half, year and a half. And I went to the creative director and I said, look, you know, and he knew about it because he was giving me permission to do it. So he said, you know what it's like to be an entrepreneur? And I said, yeah, my father was an entrepreneur, but I didn't know what it was like to be an entrepreneur. So I jumped out there and it was hard. It was really hard. First of all, the whole notion of coaching in 1974 hadn't really caught on. You know, I mean, people were used to sports coaches or coaches in the arts, but the whole notion of coaching in the business world, and it was still a big corporate world, 1974. It wasn't an entrepreneurial world. So that was the first thing. I had a very, very tough first six years were really, really tough. And I went through a divorce and a bankruptcy. You know, I just call 
that extreme marketing research. That's what I call those two events. <laughs> 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 Nothing ambiguous about the, <laughs> the reaction. You know, you just failed at two important things. But I stuck with it. I stuck with it. I remember I had a bank loan that was partially covering what I was doing. And I went to see my bank manager, who was a nice guy. He was a nice guy. But he said, when are you going to stop this foolishness? He said, you're a writer. You, you have artistic skills. He says, isn't the world telling you that this is not for you? He says, so when are you going to stop? I said, there's no possibility of me stopping. I said, I'm just not smart enough. I said, I'm not smart enough, but I am going to get smarter. So most people, when they're faced with bankruptcy and a divorce and the difficulties of such an entrepreneurial challenge, give up and return to safety. They go back and work for the mother or father. They go back to their old jobs. They take whatever job they can. And their life's over. Interesting point. And their life, as they know it, is over. And the question is, if they fall back, will they ever be able to get up and try again? I would say no. I've never seen it. I've never seen it happen. And so the question became, what? was it that drove you to keep failing forward, stumbling forward until you succeeded? Well, you know, I mean, I think that what was going on in my brain wasn't any different than what was going on in your brain in some of your early ventures. You know, I, know, but... I could feel it achieved. I could emotionally feel what it looked like when it was successful. Interesting. And so was there something that you would describe as a moonshot that was emanating from that? Was there a, not an incremental difference, but your desire for something that would be transformative? Yeah, I think that I was introducing a new form of education on the planet. And why did that matter to you? What was the emotional connection that made that matter to you? Well, my own experience when I was a child, you know, and I, uh, looking back, I think I had good schooling. I mean, I don't have any complaints whatsoever. I had Catholic education, one to 12. And that was back when they still hit people. So the lessons <laughs> tended to stick. But when I was 10 years old, I created my own alternative educational system. And uh, I went to the reference room at the local library. It was a Carnegie built 2,600 libraries with his yes. fortune or contributed to, he didn't build them completely, but he contributed. So I would pick Encyclopedia Britannica. I close my eyes. I'd open the book. I'd go like that and I'd read an article and then I'd write down notes and then they had cross. I was surfing the web, you know, yes. surfing the web <laughs> and I wrote down and what I noticed more and more as I went back to school that almost on any topic, I knew more than the teachers. It's like uh, one of our clients has a precocious 13-year-old, and he said, anything my teacher brings up, I come home, I watch five YouTube videos, tomorrow I know more than she does. <laughs> so, and I had a similar experience. I wasn't in a digital age, you know, it was still a paper world. But I was creating my own education. I had this sense, and that buffered any sense of frustration I had with the system I was in. And my mother was really clear about that. She said, you know how to read, and if you know how to read, you can go anywhere your brain takes you. And she said, 
your own experience is more important than listening to the teacher and you have to go to school. Fantastic. And so that emotional energy sort of set the seeds for what would follow. Yeah. Yeah. The thing that I really needed was a partner. And I was really passionate about the fact that it would be a 360-degree relationship. This was following my divorce. And I, you know, I just put down some specifications. I went out when I received the divorce papers. It was final. Nice person, by the way. I mean, you can meet someone when you're not really together, but you're just crossing and it feels like you really have a lot in common, but we didn't. So I just wrote down not who the person was going to be, but I wrote down what the relationship was going to be like. And the first one is not a relationship you had to work at. Mm -hmm. It was just a relationship that worked. Mm -hmm. Okay. And that it wasn't competitive. My my practice wife, as I, I call it, <laughs> my practice wife was very competitive, very competitive. And I couldn't take that. I mean, the easiest part of my day <laughs> after I'd started my business was going out and being rejected in the marketplace. The, the real <laughs> trouble started when I got home at night. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yeah. So I met Babs and Babs, we met, it'll be 40 years in August. We met for the first time, and it was just, you know, I mean, it, I looked at my checklist, and it just checked all the boxes. She's got great organizational skills, and she's got great ability to delegate. She's got great ability to choose people to be good team leaders and everything like that, and it's, um, I don't have those skills. Well, that's amazing. Getting but she said, you've got a great skill, and I want you freed up just to do the thing you do. So that's where it started. Let's talk about a longevity mindset, something that we both share. How would you describe a longevity mindset, Dan? Well, first of all, you have to be a very slow learner. <laughs> okay. What does that mean? <laughs> so what it means is that you feel that you didn't make enough progress in the normal lifetime, so you're going to need extra years. <laughs> You and I have talked about this because it was one of the great overlaps between both of us, our whole approach. And you're the first person I ever met who thought about living way, way beyond the normal expectation. I'm pretty small change compared to yours. But by the way, on the 19th of May, I am exactly halfway my goal. So I'll be 78 on my next birthday, and that's half of my 156. All right. So part of a longevity mindset, I would say, as you're describing it here, is having a objective goal of a significantly extended... you got to have a number. You have to have a number, right? Your brain doesn't take it seriously when it says just living a long time. So that's the reason you have to have a number. Yeah. Yeah. Two things that the brain really takes seriously are numbers and deadlines. And so... My lifetime extension goal is 156. You know, most statistics say that the average lifespan for males in the U.S. is in the high 70s, maybe 78. So I doubled, and I've had that for 35 years, 35 years. How did you come up with that target of 156, which is an admirable target compared to the rest of the world? Yeah. 
1987, I was watching a TV program on people who had been born in the year 1900, who had a goal to live to the year 2000. Okay, so their lifetime would exactly match a century. Okay, and I was really interested, and they they asked them about their experiences, and you know, a lot happened during the 20th century. You know, the wars, the depression. You know, there was all sorts of things. The worst pandemic since the Black Plague, 1918. And I said, boy, that would be really neat. But I I got shortchanged. I was born in 44. <laughs> so I only get 56 years in the 20th century. So I said, I'm just going to add another century to it. So I'll achieve the living a whole century in the 21st century. And it was a whimsical thought, which I very prudently kept to myself. <laughs> but what I did, Peter, within a couple of weeks of coming up with that idea, I said, you know, I'm going to test it out. Every time I think of my lifetime, I'm going to say 156 and name the year. So the year is 2100. So 156. And in about two years, it was just the natural default. And what I noticed, it, it really changed how I felt about the present. And one of the feelings I had, I have an enormous amount of time. I have enormous amount of time. I can have really big goals because I have an enormous amount of time. And at 78, I just have that sense. I just got an enormous amount of time to get done what I want to get done. There's a term you use, Dan, which I love, and I quote you on, which is having a future that's bigger than your past. Yeah. Can you speak to that? Yeah, I think that our brain is essentially a measuring device, okay? It's always measuring, is this better or worse? Is this bigger or is it smaller? And a lot of our emotions are really attached to the notion of better and bigger. And, you know, if you do things, and I'm a great scorekeeper, I keep score on a lot of different things in my life, my exercise, my sleep, my productivity, how much I get done, like knowing the numbers of how many podcast downloads that we've had and where we rank in the, you know, we're in the top 2% of 2 million podcasts in the world. I said, because I think it pumps dopamine. You get a lot of dopamine from that. And dopamine is very, very important. I mean, the reason why we take our drugs from the outside is we've got the equivalent of every one of those drugs inside. And dopamine's the one that makes you happy, the one that makes you feel confident. The phrase I like to use is, without a target, you'll miss it every time. Yeah. We have the ability to will ourselves to life and will ourselves to death. And there's a very famous target situation that you've told me about involving our founding fathers. Do you want to recount that? It's really quite exceptional. There's about a 13 or 14 individuals who, when they say founding fathers of the U.S., they name them, and half of them were presidents. And with two exceptions of these, and one of the exceptions is George Washington. He died at 67, which, you know, is a respectable age. And Hamilton, who was really the creator of the financial system, he created the whole structure of the early finances of the United States, and he died because he unfortunately chose to take up dueling. <laughs> Bad habit. <laughs> and the person he dueled with was more serious about the pastime than he was. 
And by the way, Aaron Burr, who killed Alexander Hamilton, lived to 80. And he, he was vice president of the United States. He wasn't just a nobody in the early days. But all the others lived in their high 70s. John Adams lived till he was 92. Madison was 84. Jefferson, you know, they were all in their mid-80s. This was a time, I use the year 1790, that's when the United States starts, to 1840, a 50-year period. At the beginning of that period, the average lifespan was 35 for males, and it was 40 50 years later. And they doubled, basically most of them doubled the lifespan. And there was a lot of diseases that they didn't have medicines for. There was a lot of accidental death. Childhood mortality was probably the biggest killer, you know, and they had cholera, they had smallpox, they had real killer diseases. And I think that the reason why they lived so long is that they were creating something that was unique in human history. Wasn't there a story about who was it that lived to see the anniversary of, of America? Yeah, it was Adams and Jefferson. So on the 50th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence, 1826. So 1776 was the Declaration. 50 years later, they had big national celebrations. And Adams and Jefferson, Adams died at 11 o'clock in the morning and Jefferson died at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. Just the notion that I'm going to live long enough. Yeah, and I think they willed themselves. I mean, first of all, why would they have lived 50 extra years? And secondly, why did they decide to die that day? Independent, did they know that the other was alive or dead? Adam's last statement was, Jefferson still lives. Nice. <laughs> and Jefferson died three hours later. Yeah. So my sense is that it's just unique because you look at other prominent individuals in the world, not the United States, but in the world during those days. And they died in their 50s and 60s. You know, they didn't live that long. But in part, it's a purpose-driven life as well, right? Very it's driven. And very passion, very passion-driven. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think the notion of if you want a longevity mindset, having a clear passion and purpose that you're living, and as you said, having a future bigger than your past, yeah. right? Those individuals who have nothing left to live for, you've talked about the impact of retirement on age. Can you speak to that? Well, first of all, no one's allowed to use the word in the strategic coach program. Yes, retirement is a four-letter word. I said, you cannot talk about this. And I said, you're talking yourself into your grave when you talk about retirement. And I said, because what you're planning on is a future that's less than your past, right off the bat. You're talking about not being useful. You're talking about not being productive. You're talking about not being influential. You're talking about having no applause in your life. And I said, those things keep you alive. Those things keep you excited. They keep you growing. And the thing that I find fascinating is my entrepreneurs, you know, when I first started meeting them, I met them when they were in their 50s. Almost everybody was older than me when I started coaching. And now there aren't many that are older than me. And they were right at the top of their game. They never had more knowledge. They never had more experience. They never had more success. They never had more reputation. And they said, oh, I think I'll retire. I said, why, why would you retire at the top of your game? game you know? But here's the thing that kills them. It's social comparison. 
Mm. Social comparison prevents you in the first place of getting a life purpose. Social comparison prevents you from having that passion that you talk about, Peter. And social comparison also encourages you to die way before you should have. So what does that mean? It means you're comparing yourself to other people your age, your chronological age. And their approval of you. Interesting. People who don't have a passion don't like being around passionate people. People who don't have a purpose don't like being around a purposeful person. Interesting. And and people who don't have a longevity mindset don't like being around people who are like, yeah, I'm going an extra 50 years or an extra 100 years. Oh, yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, I have five siblings who are older than 70, living siblings, 70s and 80s, and they, they all retired. You know, and I feel like I'm just getting started at 78. Yes, and we share that that passion and vision. Dan, thank you for sharing your thoughts on passion and purpose and unique ability. I think, you know, passion and purpose are like the foundation upon which we're going to build so much. I always appreciate your wisdom, my friend. Thank you very much, Peter. And I will direct everybody beyond exponential wisdom to... A360 and Bold Venture and XPRIZE and the Singularity University, all the great ventures that you've created. And for anyone who's interested in Strategic Coach, strategiccoach.com. Thank you for joining us at Exponential Wisdom. Those of you who are interested in understanding how exponential technologies are transforming your world, how computation, sensors, networks, AI, robotics, how they're transforming every industry, how you can see the future with enthusiasm and excitement and not fear the future, but be excited about the future. Consider joining my year-round program called Abundance 360. You can go to www.a360.com to learn more and find out how an abundance, an exponential, a longevity mindset, a moonshot mindset can transform the future of your business. Dan? Right. And if you want to be uh, 10 times, 100 times, 1,000 times more successful entrepreneur in the world that Peter is mapping out and describing for us, then join us at strategicoach.com. And we'll show you the growth path that entrepreneurs can take into all the amazing new exponential industries and businesses that are going to take place over the next several decades.